Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We'll read that whole chapter together to set the stage, and then we'll, we'll take things from there to help us in this subject. So who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is the reading of God's Word. Father, we thank you so much that you meet us in the confusion of life, the disillusionments of life. You meet us in our present time, though you are eternal. We thank you, God, that you are with us in this moment that we live in as a church, as individuals, as a people who are seeking to follow you into our everyday lives. We pray, God, that what is true today would penetrate our hearts and that it would not change the way we think, but it would change even the way we feel, the way we interpret everything around us, and the way we live the sake of your glory and the love of our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen. The Los Angeles Times published an article in 2014 that was called The Problem of Dual Citizenship. So this is how they started the article. It says, before becoming a naturalized U.S. citizen, immigrants must take an oath that in part says this, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance 
and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or a citizen. So in this article, they're talking about this sort of great call to, to change your citizenship and what it means. And they say the language seems to firmly establish the principle of one person, one country. But even though it sounds unequivocal, it is not. In fact, it is entirely possible, this article says, for naturalized U.S. citizens to retain citizenship in another country or for a native-born American to claim citizenship in a second country. On the face of it, it's an odd arrangement that challenges this citizenship. This, this challenges the notion, that is, that citizenship is an expression purely of national loyalty. So the question they raise is, how can a person be equally loyal to two countries? Now, this is a complicated issue. And so this is really not even going to be our issue directly. So while we may be tempted to think that there's super complicated issues of immigration, and there are, what I want us to see this morning from God's Word is this is actually an issue that all of us, are wrestling with. Everyone in this room that is a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a dual citizenship. You have a citizenship, Philippians 3.20 says, our citizenship is in heaven. That as we're born into the family of God, John 3 says, that we have been born into the kingdom of God. That our identity in this world is one of citizens of the kingdom of Christ. And that complicates things. Because the very Apostle Paul that wrote that we find our citizenship in heaven, as he presents his testimony in the book of Acts before governing authorities, he also wants to say, but I'm also a citizen of the Roman Empire. It can be really hard to think about how we live as dual citizens. How we live as citizens of earthly countries and yet ultimately as citizens of the heavenly and eternal kingdom. So let's think out hard, think out loud, that is, a little bit. Why is it hard? Why is this dual citizenship of the kingdom of Christ and at least for most of us, the United States of America, but our brothers and sisters throughout the world, how can that be hard? Melanie said there can be conflicting value systems. She says there is, and then what further complicates this is then, right, we could debate all day long till the cows come home which values conflict and which values correlate. What else makes it hard to be dual citizens? Yeah. That's good. Jonathan said the gospel calls us to see Others, there's our brothers and sisters, those in Christ. Yeah, but our country may at times say that's your enemy. I may not have said that as well as he did. Good.
Now, I think we can tell this issue, it, it is complicated, right? And it's something that touches all of us. But in the middle of all the confusion that we may have, God's people, we're supposed to take hope in the fact that God truly does reign supreme over all the kingdoms of the world, over the country we live in, and over all the countries in the world that our brothers and sisters live in. Some this morning facing persecution. Some this morning not being able to gather in a room where we can debate what temperature the air should be set on. Right? Some this morning who are going to grieve that their time together couldn't last longer. Some this morning who don't know if their government will make it even legal for them to meet and some who already have made it illegal. But we're in a good, a good place because this is an issue that God's story speaks to, that God's word speaks to. We are kind of in a unique situation in the history of the church that we have such a freedom to gather and worship as we do. The freedom to speak the gospel, the freedom to respond to the gospel, to do it in a public place. And we need not take that freedom lightly. We need to be thankful for such freedom. And such thankfulness for such freedom is what we might call a healthy patriotism. But at the same time we have a healthy patriotism, we also need to realize that our ultimate allegiance is to Christ. That we bow the knee to only one king in this world, and that is Jesus. And what we're called to wrestle with is these tensions. In Ecclesiastes 8, they're pointing to this tension of when you're living under the rule of rulers, of kings, of government officials. And you could probably even apply this into all issues of leadership and authority in your life. And what it means to live wisely. What it means, our, our main call this morning, to coexist without compromise as dual citizens of kingdom and country. Well, this is a convoluted chapter with a lot of hard things to figure out and a lot of different viewpoints from various scholars and experts. But I think that's the bottom line here is we must coexist without compromise as dual citizens of a kingdom and country. So how do we do that? The first thing is, is we've got to recognize the distinction between God's kingdom and our country. If we think this is hard, this would have been even harder for the people in Israel. Because the people of Israel were in God's kingdom. But oftentimes the rulers of those in God's kingdom did not rightly and accurately represent who God was. So we're not alone in the confusion. We know in the history of Israel there were many evil and wicked kings. Even Solomon writing this though he was the wisest one that walked the earth other than Jesus, we know in his life had many ways that he diverted from the ways of God. And yet the people of God were left under his rule. This is a tension. And so Ecclesiastes 8 is sort of exploring this. And so what is verses 8 through 1 saying about this tension? The first thing, and some of these verses are hard to interpret, but it's basically saying as we, as we approach ruling, governing officials, we need to make sure that we keep a straight face. That is, we keep, we're not fake, but we have self-control. A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. It's almost sort of saying like, I'm, I'm not going to play the game. I'm going to be who I am. But I'm not going to put myself in a position to be manipulated or to be exploited. 
verse 2 is telling us that we're called to be obedient as far as it is able for us to be under a sovereignty. Verse 2, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Again, we're spe he's speaking here directly into the life of Israel. And so the king of Israel and God were, had this covenant relationship. He was a son of David. And God's people were to live in obedience to that. And even for we people who don't live in this ancient Near Eastern kingdom, even in places like the book of Romans chapter 13, we're called to submit to the governing authorities that rule over us as those who have been ordained by God. And if we think that's hard for us to hear at certain seasons in our country, let's remember God was speaking that into a Christian community that lived under the reign of a Roman empire that would execute them often at times. Verse 3, we see though that we're called to carefully withdraw participation in evil causes. Verse 3, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. So it's saying sometimes a government might try to enlist you in participation. You need to withdraw from that, but you need to do that carefully. You need to do that cautiously. And really, even in any attempt to overthrow such a situation, you need to do that carefully. And you need to do that cautiously. Verse 4, because we know that depending on the amount of power the ruler has, such resistance is costly. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Verse 5, wisdom discerns, but it doesn't carelessly sort of flaunt the wisdom of discerning. Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. There's a wisdom here. Even when we resist, it's not just the running off at the mouth. It's a carefulness, a caution. Verse 6, the wise feel a deep burden, and yet they can be patient. There's a time and a way for everything, although a man's trouble lies heavy on him. You can feel something really deeply, and yet still respond in the right time and in the right way. And yet we know, as verse 7 says, regardless of the wisdom applied, the outcome is uncertain. Verse 8, because wisdom can't overpower the spirit of some rulers. So verse 9, we sort of have this summarized. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So again, this context is this issue of power, of those in power who have the ability to hurt others, but even in the end, they bring harm to themselves. Again, this is in the history of God's people. We think of Israel. As this nation is born in the story of God, they find themselves in the land of Egypt. They find themselves the covenant people of God with promises that they would inherit a land and they would be a blessing to the nations and that they would have a name that was great and yet they're working for Pharaoh. They're being abused. They're being oppressed. They're being harassed. And I'm wondering, what does it look like to be the people of God in such a situation when you know that you have been given such promises in such a position and yet everything that meets the eye tells you the opposite 
Again, as we move into the history of Israel, we see Israel in God's place, as God's people, under God's rule and blessing, and yet we have this whole litany of kings. Just read the book, First and Second Kings, who live in rebellion against God. There are so many kings in those books where it says, they did not love God in the way of David, but they departed. And they served foreign idols and foreign gods, and they called the people of God to follow them in this false worship. And then as the people of God are taken into exile to Assyria, to Babylon, we see again God's people wrestling. What does it look like for us to be the people of God when everyone that is over us is calling us to submit to a reign that is other than Christ? Then in the New Testament we see Israel occupied by Rome trying to figure out what does it look like for us to live in relationship. continues into the New Testament, the book of Acts, which the apostles are called to just shut their mouth. They have to stand before the rulers and say, we must obey God rather than man. In the book of 1 Peter, where we're called elect exiles, again in Philippians, as we said earlier, citizenship in heaven In the book of Romans, we're called to submit to governing authorities and yet to realize that God is the one who's on the throne and to whom belongs all glory, honor, and praise. And ultimately, really the whole book of Revelation is about this issue of what it looks like for the kingdom of God to reign supreme over the corrupt rule of man in this world and ultimately win in the end. So we say all these things this morning. It's like, we should feel this tension. If we don't feel the tension of our dual citizenship, then we have went off the rails somewhere. If we don't see even in the history of the church seasons like the great heroic reformer of the faith, for I know at least some of you, Martin Luther, Sometimes we think that he was just standing up and proclaiming the gospel in the face of a church that had went corrupt. But actually, it wasn't just the church, it was the government. This was in a season in the history of the church where the government and the church worked hand in hand. They shared power. And so as he was called to the diet of worms, not a weight loss program, but assembly... In the town of Worms, or Worms, I think you're supposed to say the German W with a V, is he wasn't just there saying, I think we need to tweak our Sunday school curriculum. He was there standing in front of a government with the power to execute him if he did not repent of his teaching that there is only one king and one word that we submit to, and that is Christ and His Word. So he said, I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. That's the tension God is calling us to live into as His people today. And this is tricky. The lines really get blurred in our country. What is the the phrase, God and country? 
slogans like flag, family, and faith. It's really tricky. I believe we should have a healthy patriotism. Were it not for the blessings of our country, we would not be able to gather here this morning and freely worship God. I thank God that my grandpa was a prisoner of war for 19 months in Germany. And his brother died in the Battle of the Bulge. When, I, when, when the Star Spangled Banners plays, I get tears in my eyes sometimes. But the temptation for us in that is to lose the reality of our dual citizenship. The temptation is for us to believe that our country is the kingdom of God. The temptation for us is to believe that these things are blended together as if we're living in some sort of modern day ancient Israel. Or even in some crazy people's talk, we are like the new Israel. I mean, we joke and say where we're from, right? I'm from Georgia, God's country or wherever. That's where I'm from. If we're not careful, we actually really start to believe that at some level. And we set ourselves up for compromise. And we set ourselves up, as Jonathan even said earlier, to find our unity in something bigger than the kingdom of Christ. Our unity becomes the United States of America above the kingdom of Jesus. And this is why we've seen in these past couple years more communities divided, Christians divided, churches divided, denominations divided, evangelicalism divided, not over creeds and confessions, but over policies and elections. What theological issues haven't been able to do to divide the church, it seems that political issues might. And this is tricky. That's what we're saying. This is complicated. It's the world we live in. So what does it look like with us not being a people who are going to like say, this is the Jesus policy? I just don't think we can do that. But what does it look like for us to be people who say, this is the Jesus way? Well, first off, we just have to be aware. We have got to resist believing that we have a single citizenship. That to be American is to be Christian. Or to be Christian is to be an American. That's just an anti-gospel. But as we often say, I think we've been taught that this definition of sin that is so helpful is sin is either exaggeration or diminishment. Right? If you don't know that concept, if you've not heard us say that before, it's really helpful. Sin is usually exaggeration or diminishment. Sin operates usually off of good things. It's a good thing to love your country. But we can exaggerate that or diminish that in very devastating ways to the advance of the kingdom of Christ. So Ecclesiastes is calling us, as all of the God's Word does, to respect authorities and to respect our country. But the challenge for so many of us is to be consistent. We all know it. I don't have to say the names. We know the names. We just, just get on Facebook, right, if you're brave, brave enough. And you'll hear people who say one thing when their people are in charge and then the opposite thing when the other people are in charge, right? 
hey, why don't you give this president a chance? Well, until the other side gets in, then let's not give them a chance. Why can't you point out some of the positive things they're doing instead of always wanting to talk about the negative things? Those are good statements. But as the people of God, we need to lead the way in being consistent. We need to lead the way in saying we will respect and pray for, assume the best, and promote the best, and celebrate the best, even if it, did, it, even if it wasn't the box that I checked when I went to vote. But also, that's why it's hard, right? Exaggeration or diminishment. We have to resist finding our identity and becoming idolaters. So back to this point. Ask ourselves, who do we find more identity with? The people who share our political party or our certain political viewpoint or with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know how you can tell where most of your identity lies and where idolatry is leaning? What makes you the maddest? What makes you the most defensive? Is it issues pertaining to the gospel and the kingdom of Christ being advanced? Or is it other things that reveal a loyalty that you have lost your dual citizenship identity? We need to be cautious, Ecclesiastes is saying. Resistance doesn't equal rashness. Sometimes it's going to look like a compromise to some people, and it's wisdom. This is what he's saying. Be careful. Jesus said, be shrewd as snakes, innocent as doves. But at the same time, be a person of integrity. Resistance doesn't mean by any means necessary or by any mean necessary. Right? We all know who wins in our culture. It's the most loudest and emotional voices. That should not be the way it is in the kingdom of Christ. We shouldn't say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to win. I'm only going to tell a half-truth. We're not going to... We, we, we see this happen all the time. We cannot begin to play these political games and say, it doesn't matter what we do. We just got to do whatever it takes to get the power. To go philosophically on you, that is a Nietzschean, death of God view of the world. That we say, we'll sell our souls as long as at the end of the day we have all the power. We'll do any means necessary to win. Because at the end of the day, there's winners and losers. Now again, we have to be wise. And we may make different decisions on how we apply this. But we, we never take a lesser of two evils approach that says they're not still both evil. May we never be caught, as Solomon says here, as those participating in evil causes, even if we have good intentions. But let's say we live into this tension, then we've got to be ready that nobody, some days nobody's going to like you. Because we'll be the people who are saying, I'm not following that game. I'm following Jesus. And so on one day this side hates you, on one side this side hates you. Both are saying you're naive. Both are saying you don't get how the world works. Both are saying it's time to grow up. 
to choose sides. And at that point, we must stand with all the saints of old that stood in that situation. And even with our brother Martin Luther and say, here I stand, can do no other. How do we do that? We coexist without compromise, not just by acknowledging our dual citizenship. We do so by recognizing the divine supremacy of God's kingdom over all nations. This is really how the the chapter ends in verses 10 through 17. Verse 10 tells us that the wicked don't escape death. And even though they may praise, be praised in this world for their power, for their appearances, and for accomplishments, that they don't win. That even though, as verse 11 says, that in the meantime, the delayed justice of God can create and even promote a culture of evil that tempts everyone to just play the game, just to submit to wickedness. That verses 12 through 13 teach us in the end, the wicked may live longer and even better now but there is a judgment coming. And this is why we're called in this this text to live in the fear of the Lord and to find our joy in a life that is under the fear of God. And what the fear of the Lord means, another way to define this, is it just means that we live in ultimate allegiance to Him. He is our King. He is our Sovereign. He is where we find our identity. He is how we live our lives. We do our work. We do our toil. We do it with joy because we know that God is reigning. And we know that in the end, God wins. Even though, as verses 16 and 17 tell us, we must do this without sight because many days it's going to look like the wicked win and the righteous lose. And that's it. But the God who was God of Israel while they were in Egypt under slavery is the God who sent Moses. 400 years of oppression. But God sent a Savior. It's the God who, who the people of Israel lived under the, the rash and hasty and selfish rule of Saul, raised up a king named David who would defeat the enemies of God's people and establish a kingdom for the glory of God. It's the king of Daniel, who though he was thrown into a lion's den, the God who was with his trusted servant. It's the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were doing their best to be a blessing in a foreign land, and yet they were told, if you don't bow the knee and worship the image and worship the idol, you will be executed. They were thrown into the fiery furnace. But as Nebuchadnezzar looked into the flames, he said, I see someone that looks like a son of God walking among them. And it's the God who was with his people as they were in exile, even in their own land, under the rule of Rome, who at the fullness of time sent his son, Jesus. And as we see Jesus living, he lives this wisdom out. It's amazing how he knows the right time to be bold, the right time to answer a question with a question, the right time to to just 
put it in the face of the governing authorities and the right time to say nothing. Jesus is wisdom lived. He was aware. He was cautious. He was full of integrity. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is nobody owned him. The Roman government couldn't manipulate him and use him. The religious establishment of Israel couldn't manipulate and use him. He was living as a dual citizen in full faithfulness to God. In all of our compromises, in all of our confusion, our sins and even our sufferings in this issue, Jesus lived it perfectly and faithfully for us. And He died for us. He died for the captive idolaters like the tax collectors who had went into cahoots with Rome. Cahoots. Who uses that word? Went into collaboration with Rome. He did it. Right? He called these tax collectors who had betrayed their own people. And he said, I love you. I'm here to rescue you. Jesus is not here to just heap condemnation on people on either side of this issue. He's here to call all of us to his table. For the tax collectors, but also for the zealots. The ones who were cooperating wrong, but for the zealots who wanted to be terrorists against Rome. And he calls them to the table and says, I'm here to die for you. I'm here to rescue you. I'm here to restore you. For the sinners rode off by Rome. For those prostituted and shamed by Rome. And in the middle of it all, it looked as if Rome and the religious establishment of Israel were winning. The cross looked like the foolishness of God. But in it, Jesus was rescuing us. In it, Jesus was subverting the principalities and powers and rulers of the world and bringing victory, even as they mocked him with a sign over his head that says, King of the Jews. But the one they mocked, the one they killed, the one they put in a borrowed tomb is the one who rose as the Son of God. And that word, Son of God, was not just heard from the perspective of Israel's history as the Messiah, but you know who else took on the term the Son of God? It was the Roman ruler. They considered themselves to be sons of God. And so as we read in God's word that Jesus was risen and he was proclaimed to be now the son of God, it is not just saying he's the fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes. It's saying this one is the true empire leader of the world, of all history, of all times, and all peoples, and all places. He is our king. King of kings and lord of lords. And if we bow our knee to any other ideology, any other philosophy, any other kingdom, then we may find ourselves seated in high places in this world. But in the end, we will not find ourselves seated with the one who is supreme. The one who has said, I will build my church. The one whom the Roman government, even after this, tried to suppress God's people, beat them down, and shut them up but the harder they pressed on the church, the church spread even more like wildfire across the world. One of my favorite Disney movies is Robin Hood, the cartoon one. 
I think there's something about Robin Hood. It's not just the bow and the arrow. And definitely for me as a kid, it wasn't Maid Marian. But why do these stories like Robin Hood been really resonate with us? It's, it's this story of a people who are living under an unjust rule. And there's somebody that's keeping hope alive. And you can debate Robin Hood's tactics. We won't do that right now. But there's this person who continues to just keep hope alive. When the little, little bunny rabbit gets his birthday money taken. And he, he brings him a gift. When Friar Tuck gets locked up and he visits him. But what is the hope in the background of the story of Robin Hood? It's not just Robin Hood doing nice things. The story consummates when King Richard gets back home. Because his wicked brother John does not win. That the king is going to return. This is our hope. Jesus really is going to return. He is the one the government, Isaiah says, is on his shoulders. And his kingdom will have no end. All wrongs will be righted. But in the meantime, in wise, respectful of authority ways, and yet resisting identity and idolatry, we get to kind of be the Robin Hoods who now go out into the world and remind people the king's still alive. He's coming back. Don't lose hope. I know it's hard days. I know it's confusing times. But there's something bigger. There's something better. And when we live into that hope, we can coexist. Coexist as dual citizens of both kingdom and country. Father, we thank you.